Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. So welcome back to Bolas Podcast. This is the first episode in Series 5. And we're joined by Ashu Wachelikar, who's a consultant hematologist at the National Amyloidosis Centre at the Royal Free and also UCLH. His academic and clinical interests are focused on amyloidosis and multiple myeloma. In particular, the characterization of and treatment of systemic amyloidosis, including clinical trials of new novel agents in these disorders. I was wondering, the protein amyloid, do we have it in us? Or is it only present in people suffering from the condition? So amyloid is, an, is a deposition of an abnormal protein. It's not normal. And normal people shouldn't have any amyloid deposits in their body. However, as one tends to get older, there are certain proteins which will break down and cause formation of amyloid. These are not abnormal proteins, but these are actually normal proteins which will cause amyloidosis in the very older population called transthyretin. We don't see so much of that particular kind of amyloidosis here at UCH, but the type we see is uh, related to an underlying monoclonal gammopathy, MGUS, or multiple myeloma or sometimes Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia where the protein that's produced by the tumor cells or the plasma cells is very unstable or sticky in simple words. And as the blood will circulate through the various organs, this protein will then deposit into those organs and then cause damage or uh, malfunction of those organs. So is amyloidosis a cancer, or is it only when it's related to something like a multiple myeloma that's classed as a cancer? So that is a really difficult question. <laughs> the underlying pathology to amyloidosis is a cancer, because the cells are clearly malignant, they're abnormal. But in the vast majority of the patients, the cells themselves are not really causing the problem. It's the protein which is being produced by the cells which is being causing the problem. So we are dealing with two separate entities here. One is the cellular component which is producing the protein, that's the cancerous bit. And then the protein itself which is depositing in organs which is not the cancerous bit but which is the consequences of the protein deposits that we're dealing with. And then in about a third to half of the patients the cells themselves, although they're producing the protein, are still fully benign. So they are not truly cancerous. So if you had a patient who had an MGUS without amyloidosis, one wouldn't treat them. And the only indication for treatment is that they have the protein deposits causing organ dysfunction. And which organs do they tend to go to? So the amyloid uh, forming proteins typically affect uh, four different organ systems. The commonest are heart and kidneys. That happens in about 70 to 80% of the patients. The kidneys uh, become leaky to protein and therefore the normal albumin will leak out of the kidneys and the serum albumin levels will go down. Therefore the patients will often have lots of fluid retention and edema like nephrotic syndrome and hypoalbuminemia. They will deposit in the heart, and the heart muscle will become very thick and very stiff. And therefore, although the pumping function of the heart remains quite normal, the relaxation function of the heart becomes impaired because the heart is very stiff, so it can't really fill up with blood. So with every single beat, it'll pump out less blood because it is very stiff, and it can't actually fill up to pump out enough blood. Then the two other organs that will affect is the liver, which causes abnormality of the liver function tests, and the liver becomes very enlarged. Or it will affect the nerves, the peripheral nerves and the autonomic nerves. And a lot of the patients we see become inpatients because their autonomic nerves are affected by amyloid. And these are nerves which would impact on their being able to maintain a blood pressure when they're standing up, affect their appetite, or impact the movement of their bowels. And is that because the deposits around the nerves rather than affecting the brain? That's right. The deposits are actually in the nerves, and therefore they will damage the nerves directly. 
The one organ that amyloid never affects is the brain, systemic amyloidosis. There is a type of amyloidosis which happens within the brain, and that's amyloidosis with Alzheimer's disease. That is also amyloidosis, and there the amyloid protein is formed inside the brain, never comes out of the brain. And the systemic amyloidosis that we deal with is outside the brain, never goes inside the brain. And that's because the blood-brain barrier protects the brain against transmission of these proteins. So taking it back then, we'd probably go back to those organs in a little bit more detail. So just in general, um, the condition is very, very rare. How many people in the UK suffer from this? So the condition is rare, but probably not very, very rare. For a long time, it was never diagnosed, and therefore it was considered to be very, very rare. And a lot of patients simply died of amyloidosis without a diagnosis being made. At the National Amyloidosis Centre at the Royal Free Hospital, we see probably 1,000 new patients every year with amyloidosis. And we see about 650 new patients with AL amyloidosis, the type that we see and treat here. And every year for follow-up, we'll probably see about two to 3,000 patients with AL amyloidosis. So it's not that rare. Within the myeloma world, on an average, incidence of amyloidosis is about a fifth of that of myeloma. So if you have 100 myeloma patients, you'll normally have about 15 to 20 amyloid patients. Okay. So it's quite uncommon, but it's not mm. rare. Mm. More often than not, it's not suspected, and there is a huge delay in diagnosis because these symptoms are often very subtle, you know, tiredness, a bit of fluid retention, a bit of breathlessness. Now, that in a patient who's anemic, who's on chemotherapy, one would consider that to be very common. But actually, that patient may have early amyloidosis, and it's often not thought of. So you don't normally diagnose people with AL amyloidosis at the same time as the myeloma. You can go on to develop it while they're on treatment for myeloma. It can be both ways. You can either diagnose them before their myeloma is diagnosed because they will primarily present with amyloidosis. But at times, patients will present with myeloma because their cells are genuinely myelomatous and very cancerous. And they develop amyloidosis as the myeloma is being treated. Because as long as the myeloma protein is there in the blood, it will continue to build up and it can still cause amyloid formation. And so how do we formally diagnose the amyloidosis? It's formally diagnosed by a combination of uh, tests. The challenge in amyloidosis is there is no single blood test which will tell us that this patient has amyloidosis. That's what often delays diagnosis. It's almost always a combination of organ involvement. So patients have unexplained kidney failure, heart failure, or unexplained kidney failure and nerve damage, or unexplained heart and nerve damage in the context of an abnormal protein in the blood that leads to the suspicion of amyloidosis. We then do imaging which is normally an echocardiogram or an MRI scan of the heart, which tells us about amyloid in the heart. It gives us a specific pattern of a thickened heart, which is very stiff. MRI scan, after you give them contrast, will give a very classic pattern of so-called late gadolinium enhancement, so that the gadolinium, which is the contrast, will light up the inside of the heart. And that's a very typical pattern, which is seen in amyloidosis. Can you see the proteins on the scans? You can't see the protein on the scan by these two scans, but at the Royal Free, we do a particular kind of scan called SAP scan, which is a very specific amyloid scan. And we're the only country in the world who actually does SAP scans routinely for amyloidosis. Now, SAP is a protein which is already present on the amyloid deposits. And what we do at the Royal Free is we radio-label the SAP and give a little injection of this radio-labeled SAP. And this will then go and bind to amyloid deposits wherever they are. And then if we put a patient on the scanner a few hours later, we can actually see the amyloid deposits lighting up. And that will be in their organs? That will be in their internal organs, so we can see the enlarged liver, we can see the spleen, we can see the kidneys, we can see the bone marrow or very large lumps of amyloid. And then we repeat these scans every year or six months to track whether the amyloid in the internal organs is getting better or getting worse. And then the last step in the diagnosis is actually a biopsy. 
So all of these tests will tell us that there is either a strong suspicion of amyloidosis or SAP scan will tell us that there is amyloid deposits in the internal organs, but it doesn't tell us what kind. There are about 20 different kinds of amyloidosis in humans, and each one behaves entirely differently. So we can suspect very strongly based on which organs are affected as to what kind of amyloidosis may be, but the final way is to have a biopsy, look at the amyloid deposits under a microscope. Uh, we do a stain called as a Congo red stain, and when we uh, look at the amyloid deposits under this stain, it, the amyloid deposits light up, uh, and they look of an apple green color. That's called an apple green birefringence. And that's a very classic color for amyloidosis. And that's the way to diagnose it. And then after we have confirmed that there is amyloid deposits, we would put a panel of antibodies to the amyloid protein, so-called immunohistochemistry, to work out the type of amyloid deposits. And that'll tell us this is AL type, or it's the age-related type that I mentioned, or there are a whole host of familial types, because each one of them would be treated very differently. And depending on how much amyloidosis is in an organ, does that influence what treatment you have? It does in a way. So the, the things which influence treatment are how many organs are affected, what combination of organs are affected, and how badly damaged those organs are. Because all of these patients are treated with chemotherapy in one form or the other, and if they have, say, for example, quite bad nerve damage, then drugs such as thalidomide or botazomib, which are standard treatments for myeloma and amyloidosis, we would find it quite difficult to use those because they would make those nerve damage worse and we might use something else. So the combination might affect it, and sometimes the heart may be very badly affected. And we may have to go uh, with treatment very gently and very carefully because even very small side effects on the drugs could prove quite damaging to the patient. Is the diagnosis quite late then? later than in the sort of average myeloma patient as well? Absolutely. I mean, the biggest challenge in amyloidosis is delayed diagnosis. And uh, we did a patient survey for patients with amyloidosis, and we found that on an average, patients with systemic AL amyloidosis had seen six different hospital consultants oh, really? uh, over an 18-month period before a diagnosis was made. Older patients with cardiac amyloidosis had about nine hospital admissions in the year before the diagnosis was made where amyloid was not suspected as a possible diagnosis. And the disease often progresses quite rapidly, and the average survival of an untreated patient with amyloidosis is about a year. So a lot of patients will come to us when their organs are quite damaged. And in fact, patients who are diagnosed early, the outcomes are very, very good, much better than multiple myeloma. Is it curable, amyloidosis, or is it something that we treat and kind of keep at bay? It's not curable at the moment. It's very, very much like myeloma, which is very treatable. We put it into a good remission. Those remissions will last for a long time, but then they will relapse and they will need further treatment. And the big difference from multiple myeloma to amyloidosis is that since the cells are not that malignant, the treatment response is actually very good. And the even simple treatments, the responses will last for a very long time. Say, for example, if you treat Velcade to treat amyloidosis, which is a standard first-line treatment, if patients gets a very good response, then the response will last for three or four years on an average, compared to less than a year in patients with multiple myeloma. And when the responses last for a long time, the protein deposits in the organs can get better. So if we can reduce or eliminate the sticky protein or the abnormal protein from the blood, then the scavenger cells, the macrophages in the body, will be able to clear the amyloid deposits. And they are clearing it, but they just clear it very slowly. So as long as there is a buildup, you can't eliminate those deposits. But as soon as the, the protein in the blood is reduced and the buildup slows down or stops, the body catches up and then starts clearing the deposits. It takes time, six months, sometimes nine months, sometimes a year. But over that sort of time, patients will generally start to get better. 
their uh, blood pressure improves, their breathlessness gets better, their, the leaky kidneys start to uh, repair themselves, and there is substantial improvement. So it is quite rewarding to see that when we have treated these patients, and you often see the patients who are very unwell when they're on the wards, actually a year later they'll be walking on the street without any trouble. And can I just ask, the uh, protein, is it different in amyloid to myeloma? So the difference between the protein is they all have a paraprotein, mm -hmm. and they all have serum-free light chains. This is the light chain component of the monoclonal immunoglobulin. And it's this light chain component, amyloidosis, which is abnormal. And the abnormality is that the protein is structurally unstable. And when the protein is structurally unstable, as you know, the proteins have got a very complex structure. They're folded on themselves. And when they're unstable, they just unfold. And when they unfold, the inside of the protein, which is normally completely hidden, gets exposed. And on these hidden bits, there are sticky residues, which can stick to all sorts of things. And in amyloid, they stick to each other. And then one light chain will stick to the next, and then another one, and another one, and another one, and it'll form long chains of light chains. And that's the amyloid protein. And then it organizes itself into a fibril, which is a bit like a rope, a hemp rope, which is twisted on itself. And it's called as a beta-pleated sheet. So it makes itself into a fibril and therefore it's very strong, and therefore the body finds it quite challenging to clear it. In normal way, bodies can clear protein deposits quite efficiently. As an example, if you um, have an injury and get a bit of a bruise, the bruise is blood protein in the skin, and the body will clear it within a week or two, the bruise is completely gone. The amount of protein that you have in a big bruise is probably the same as the amount of protein that's there in the heart in an amyloid patient. But the body will take like a year to clear that little protein in the heart because it doesn't recognize that this is a protein which is a abnormal and second it's in a particular structure that it can't turn it over very quickly. So it's not the chemotherapy or the treatments that actually clear the deposits we're just getting rid of the driving factor for the disease. Absolutely and that is a big challenge we have in amyloidosis is that we're actually not treating the problem we're treating the cause of the problem which is the sticky protein or the unstable protein by chemo but the organ damage which is caused by the protein, we're actually doing nothing for that. And we're hoping that reducing this protein will allow the body to take care of that. We have got a very active research program with drugs which will accelerate the clearance of these proteins. We know from our experiments in mice model with amyloidosis that if we can make an antibody which will go and bind to these amyloid fibrils, the body will suddenly start recognizing these amyloid fibrils as being abnormal. And there will be a huge influx of macrophages and they'll clear the um, amyloid deposits very quickly. And in the mice model, if we can give an antibody, the amyloid deposits will clear within a couple of weeks. And we are about to open a new clinical trial with an antibody called Kalem KEL101, which is an antibody to these fibrils. And in the early phase studies, they were able to show that patients who were given this antibody had improvement in their heart function within six weeks of the antibody being given, which is quite uncommon. So would you still give the chemotherapy to treat the problem and then afterwards try and clear it by using this new antibody? Yes, we'll need both approaches because as long as the abnormal protein is in the blood, it'll still keep pouring into the internal organs and still keep forming amyloid deposits. So then you're doing two things. You're removing it from with the antibody, you're depositing it with the protein that's there. And unless the antibody was remarkably effective, I don't think we'll win. Okay. So the patients will still need chemotherapy, but our expectation is that if we can improve their organ function and make them better, the tolerance will be so much better. I mean, we won't have all of the complications that we see. So we could literally bring in a patient, give them an antibody for a few weeks, make the organ function better, and then you know comfortably give them chemotherapy, which isn't that toxic in general. 
In terms of grading of the disease, is there a grading structure in terms of how many organs are effective? So the grading structure for amyloidosis is based mainly on the heart damage. The commonest thing that kills patients with amyloidosis is cardiac dysfunction. And the Mayo Clinic in the United States developed a grading system called as the Mayo Staging System. And patients who have no heart involvement are staged as one. Those who have intermediate heart involvement are staged as two. And then the very sick patients are staged as three. A lot of patients we see in our clinic here tend to be stage three because they are the most unwell patients who want to come to us for treatment. And the ones who get admitted are often the, the worst of the stage three patients. There is also a staging system for kidney amyloid, which is separate from heart amyloid, and that will give us a feel for the risk of patients ending up on dialysis. And patients who have stage 3 kidney amyloid, the risk of getting on dialysis is about 70% at two years from diagnosis. Oh, really? Is that, are they more complex than the heart patients, or are they all just very complex? The heart <laughs> patients are the most difficult to treat yeah. because they often tend to have low blood pressures, they have a lot of fluid retention, and they often get cardiac arrhythmias. Their heart yeah. rhythm goes irregular and their hearts, because they're so badly damaged, don't tolerate this rhythm irregularity. The kidney patients are challenging in a different way in the sense that they have problems with fluid retention and any uh, toxic insult such as an infection or low blood pressure or whatever would result in the kidneys just promptly failing and they often don't recover. But uh, we, can, we can dialyze these patients and replace the kidney function with dialysis. So in some ways, patients with isolated kidney amyloid, although we might not be able to save their kidneys, we could still put them on dialysis and treat them afterwards. The cardiac patients are a big challenge. Once in a while, we have a young cardiac patient with bad heart amyloid, and we do heart transplant in these cases. We do about two or three a year in the wow. UK. And uh, that certainly is a transformative treatment for these cardiac patients. But most of the patients are much older and they've got lots of other organs affected, so they're not suitable for, um, for a heart transplant. I think on the wards, when we look after the patients, I think the nurses, we're more concerned about blood pressures and fluid, how to maintain their fluid. So the main thing for these patients is, um, for amyloid patients, too little fluid is not good for them. Too much fluid is not good for them either. So they often tend to have what we call as a very narrow fluid window. These patients often don't go into pulmonary edema, don't get hypoxic if they've got a bit much, too much fluid on board. So if you end up in giving a patient a little extra fluid, I would never panic. Those patients will not get harmed by a bit of extra fluid. Right. Uh, the only time I wouldn't give extra fluid is that they're genuinely hypoxic. But otherwise, if uh, their blood pressure is low and they drink a little extra fluid, it's not a problem. We'll almost always restrict their fluid intake to about one and a half liters or between one and a half to two liters a day because too much fluid will accumulate and they'll gradually get fluid overloaded. So on the ward, when there is a patient whose blood pressure is very low and they're finding it difficult to sit up, it's always best to get someone to assess their fluid status and see if they are usually underfilled. And if they don't have enough fluid, giving them you know, even like two or three glasses of fluid to drink will be enough to stabilize their blood pressure. If their blood pressure is dropping very much when they're sitting up or standing up, just being very gentle with them is often enough to um, help that blood pressure. So support stockings make a difference. If you put support stockings on, that helps the blood pressure when they're sitting up. And also when the patients are sitting up, if you get them to sit up on the side of the bed, move their legs a little bit, then stand up on the side of the bed and again try and move their legs a bit and then contract their muscles in the legs, that will stop the blood pressure from dropping. And that then saves them from keeling over when they're walked over to the bathroom, which is the commonest scenario that you find in the wards. When someone's blood pressure is dropping, if it's out of hours and in an emergency situation, I think the first kind of thing to do is fill that patient with fluid. Yeah. 
I think the challenge with the fluid is not to fill them up too much. So you can give small fluid boluses like 250 mils, and that'll be absolutely fine. Right. But if they get a liter fluid bolus, that will be quite dangerous. And that's why when the patient is not very unwell, we often just give oral fluids because that's always much gentler on the system in terms of how the fluid goes in. The other thing to remember from a blood pressure nursing perspective is we don't worry so much about the actual number of the blood pressure. A lot of these patients will be walking around with blood pressures of 85s and 90s. Okay. And they'll be perfectly comfortable for a long time. So the average blood pressure for patients who are in my clinic is about 90. And if anyone walks in with 95 or 100, we're like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we really worry when they drop below 70. Okay. But we go more by symptoms. So if someone's sitting up with a blood pressure of 80 and actually not dizzy, we're not that worried about it. On the other hand, if they're 90 and they're actually really dizzy and getting double vision, I would worry about it a lot more. So don't worry about the number on the machine. Worry about how symptomatic they are. They're not passing out. If they're sitting comfortably and chatting to you at the end of the bed, and not, you know, double vision, then a blood pressure of 80 is not a problem in an amyloid patient. And then the last thing is we use a drug called midodrin, yeah. which helps to push up their blood pressure, and it's really effective in amyloid patients. Patients with cardiac amyloid need a very large dose of midodrin, much more than what is used, used on average. And if a patient has low blood pressure, then a single dose of midodrin will be enough to tide them over for a few hours with that low blood pressure. And we tend to be quite generous with the midodrin, and sometimes we would be very happy to prescribe it as a PRN drug to be taken if required if the blood pressure is lower once in a while. Uh, we don't do it very often just because nurses are often concerned about when to give it, but its half-life is about six hours. So if the last dose has been given six hours earlier, you could easily give an extra dose of a few milligrams without causing too much trouble to most patients with amyloidosis. We use normally between 10 and 20 milligrams three or four times a day. In most other settings where midodrin is used, the average dose is up to 2.5 milligrams three times oh, okay. a day. So there's a big disparity between what amyloid patients require and what other patients require. But as long as uh, the amyloid team has reviewed the patient and is comfortable that this patient is safe for midodrin, then if they take a slight extra dose of midodrin, it will usually not harm them in any way. So the patients we see are probably the, the hardest to treat patients, and they're typically coming in for an autologous transplant. What's the kind of the hope, the effect that treatment will have for them? So you see two, two groups of patients who come on the ward. You see one group of patients who are the very sick cardiac patients who are coming in for their first cycle of chemo because they're very unstable and it's very challenging to manage them out in the community when they get the chemo with their low blood pressures, their fluid retention, their diuretics. And that's where an inpatient care can actually um, keep them alive for the time we require to give the chemotherapy. And then the second group of patients is the patients who are actually a lot fitter where an autologous transplant is very effective in these settings. And these are the younger patients whose heart is not very badly damaged with amyloidosis. They may have a bit of cardiac amyloid, whose kidneys may be a bit damaged with amyloid, but not very badly damaged. And there, often we use the transplant as a consolidation procedure for these patients. The big difference with transplanting amyloid patients and myeloma patients is, again, the same issues of fluid retention. We do two different things. The patients with cardiac amyloid, we tend to be fairly strict on their fluid status. One thing we tend to do with all amyloid patients who come in for a transplant is to use prophylactic ciprofloxacin or a prophylactic antibiotic because they don't tolerate the septic hit. If they get septic and hypotensive, that's not very good for them because they can't respond as well as normal people do. So that's why the antibiotic might sometimes just cut out that septic hit and prevent organ damage. Patients with cardiac amyloid, we need to kind of keep them slightly on the dry side because they will accumulate fluid. Patients with renal amyloid are exactly opposite. Their kidneys don't like being dehydrated and dry, so we have to keep them on the wet side. And we often fill them up with fluid. And at the start of the transplant, we would normally give guidelines as to which patient needs to be kept wet and which patient needs to be kept dry. And then lastly, we use a drug called amiodron, which is an antiarrhythmic, 
which we routinely start on all cardiac patients having a transplant because there's a very high risk of atrial fibrillation for these patients, and that often makes the fluid management a big challenge. And what we have found is that if they get prophylactic amiodron, the risk of atrial fibrillation is much reduced. And we normally give amiodron till they are able to swallow pills and then they can stop taking it because it's got a very long half-life and they could restart afterwards if required. Uh, those are probably the major things with the transplant amyloid patients, but we were very, very careful in selecting these patients. And we probably do about 8 or 10 amyloid patients, I think, a year for transplants. We do more than the rest of the country put together. But we select them very, very carefully. They all have uh, quite a detailed cardiac workup. They all get a stress test before they come in. They put on the treadmill to make sure they can actually do a proper treadmill test. We'll do good tests of kidney function. We'll do a cardiac MRI. We often do a 24-hour ECG monitor before we select these patients for transplant. Okay. And certainly the mortality from transplant in amyloid has gone down quite dramatically in the last sort of 10 years since we've been implementing these strategies. So the, the mortality for cardiac amyloid patients having transplant is about 10 to 15% uh, for an autologous transplant, which is very, very high. And certainly, Touchwood in the UK, we've had no deaths with transplants in the last five years now. Wow. And um, for those patients that do have a stem cell transplant, when the gut is affected by amyloid, and obviously the types of chemotherapy that we give for a transplant really affect the gut, I think that's one of the areas where we see lots of fluid loss. So how difficult is that to manage in terms of loss through things like diarrhea because the gut's so affected? Most of the patients who will be coming to transplant will not have very bad autonomic neuropathy. So their diarrhea will maybe be only modestly worse than you might see in an average myeloma patient who's undergoing a transplant. So it shouldn't be so much of a problem. The major thing is to be a bit preemptive about fluid replacement in the patients with kidney amyloid. Some patients who have a lot of amyloid in their liver when they undergo a transplant are at a higher than average risk of GI bleeding. And therefore, when their gut gets affected or if they get bad mucositis, we try and keep their platelets uh, above 30 to uh, reduce their risk of GI bleeding. But as far as fluid replacement is concerned, just preemptiveness is more important than waiting for the diarrhea to happen and then the blood pressure to drop and then start the fluid. As soon as they start getting diarrhea, if they're not having a good oral intake, starting even a background IV infusion of a litre a day or a litre and a half a day is often enough to stop them from getting hypotensive or getting kidney impairment. If you do catch someone at an early stage, what does their treatment kind of journey look like? If they don't have lots of cardiac or renal impairment, what might they, what drugs might they go on and how long would you expect them to work for? So the standard treatment for most patients with amyloidosis is a combination of cyclophosphamide, botazomib and dexamethasone. That's CVD or Cybody, that's the standard frontline treatment. And that's pretty much for all patients with amyloidosis these days. We normally give between five and six cycles of CVD, so once a month for six months. They come in for weekly vertical injections. They get the cyclophosphamide weekly and the steroids once or twice weekly. We find that about 80% patients will get a good response to this treatment. And if they get a complete response, we'll simply stop the treatment at the time and then keep on monitoring them. Now, within that CVD patients, we'll have about 15 to 20% patients who are really early in their disease course, like you mentioned. And those patients may be suitable for a consolidation transplant. Also, some of these patients may genuinely be in the kind of myeloma spectrum where we would preemptively consider a transplant. But for the others, we'll simply stop the treatment and monitor. The remission duration varies from patient to patient, but the median is about three years if they get a really good response, which is quite long. And generally, patients' organ functions improve within those three years. And then when they relapse, they will generally get a second-line treatment either with lenalidomide or very similar to myeloma. And the pathway that these patients follow is essentially the pathway that NICE is defined for patients with myeloma, which is typically frontline botazomib 
second line lenalidomide, third line ixazomib, fourth line daratumumab. None of the drugs are truly licensed for amyloidosis. They're all licensed for myeloma and therefore these patients um, kind of fit under the myeloma umbrella for treatment, so to say. Because it's quite rare, this disease, is there much kind of funding for amyloidosis patients? We are quite lucky in the UK because we have got a nationally funded centre for amyloidosis, which is which has allowed us to actually see the national caseload of patients at the Royal Free. Uh, we conduct a lot of research programmes from the Royal Free, and our clinic has basically originated from the patients at the Royal Free who we treat down here. But beyond that, the funding is still quite a challenge because it's a rare disease, and therefore we are a small fish competing for funding. But it's becoming increasingly recognized because there are drugs which have now become licensed for other kinds of amyloidosis. And suddenly both the NHS as well as um, doctors have woken up to the fact that it is not such a rare disease and we need to think about it more often. So funding is becoming available for amyloidosis more than it used to be. But traditionally it's always been quite difficult to get clinical trials and research funded for amyloidosis. And more often than not we have had funding from the cancer charities for amyloid trials and treatments. Is there a particular charity that supports amyloidosis that you want to mention? We have had uh, quite a lot of support from Myeloma UK for amyloidosis over the years. Some of our trials have been funded through CRUK. At the Royal Free, we've got a small um, charitable fund that patients have donated to that has funded small research projects.